Good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Studies here at Cato. Uh, to start out framing today's debate, I want to go back uh, about a year and a half when Chairman Bernanke of the Federal Reserve spoke at our monetary conference and he talked about Federal Reserve transparency. And I just want to throw out some things that he said that I think would help kind of keep in mind the direction of it. Uh, first of all, Chairman Bernanke praised the move toward greater transparency, saying, quote, Monetary policymakers are public servants whose decisions affect the life of every citizen. Consequently, in a democratic society, they have a responsibility to give the people and their elected representatives a full and compelling rationale for the decisions they make. Shimmer Bernanke also goes on to argue that improving the public's understanding of the central bank's objectives and policy strategies reduces economic and financial uncertainty and thereby allows businesses and households to make more informed decisions. At the time of his remarks... Chairman Bernanke and other commenters on Federal Reserve transparency almost solely focused on monetary policy. Since these remarks, the Federal Reserve has engaged in a variety of activities far beyond its traditional role in monetary policy and has seen an expansion of its powers beyond anything since its founding. For instance, the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve has tripled to over to $2.3 trillion. We've seen the bailouts of AIG and Bear Stern. In addition to that, the Fed has created a minimum of 14 new lending programs, none of which have had any explicit congressional authority, uh, and most of which have been done in the absence of any former rulemaking. Uh, the Fed's foray beyond monetary policy raises new and fundamental questions about its role in the regulation of our capital markets and our financial institutions. I'm very sure that is something we will touch on today in our speakers. Um, our first speaker is Congressman and Physician Ron Paul. In addition to representing the 14th Congressional District of Texas, uh, Dr. Paul serves as the ranking member of the Subcommittee on Domestic Monetary Policy and Technology of the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, more importantly, Dr. Paul has been the leading advocate in Congress for bringing Washington back to the principles of limited and constitutional government. He's long been a friend of Cato, uh, and more importantly, he's been an even greater friend of the cause of liberty. Uh, Dr. Paul has introduced legislation to expand GEO's auditing of the Fed, legislation which I now believe has uh, 242 co-sponsors from across the political spectrum. I believe there are over 70 Democrats are co-sponsors. Uh, our second speaker is Gilbert Swartz, a partner at Swartz and Ballin, one of the leading financial services law practices in Washington, or really anywhere for that matter. Uh, Gil served 10 years as associate general counsel to the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System here in Washington. Uh, he handled legal issues relating to monetary policy, payment systems, and bank regulation for the board. Our final speaker will be Bert Ely, president of Ely & Company, a financial consulting firm. Uh, my own experience working on financial services for a very long time, I have found Bert to be one of the most insightful informed voices on financial regulatory policy and one of the first places I go. Uh, he was one of the first to raise the alarm about Freddie and Fannie, as well as in the 80s, one of the first to actually predict the savings and loan crisis before it happened. Uh, and I will note, in terms of understanding our current financial crisis, I cannot recommend a better place for you to start reading than Bert's recent article in the winter 09 issue of the Cato Journal. Um, with that, I want to welcome all of our speakers, and I want to welcome Congressman Paul to the podium. Thank you very much. Uh, it's a real delight to be here, and uh, of course, 
I'm pleased to come here and discuss a subject that uh, fascinates me and has been an interest of mine for not a couple years, but uh, quite a few decades. Matter of fact, it was the monetary issue that first got me interested in running for Congress uh, back in the 70s. And uh, some of you here may even remember the 70s, and they were rather hectic. If you don't remember them, uh, you probably have read about them, and they were very hectic. And uh, I was fascinated with the fact that uh, the Austrian free market economists predicted in, early on in the 60s that uh, the Bretton Woods arrangement would never, never last, and it, and it failed. And uh, then that led into chaos of the 70s. But uh, on a lark, I thought I would uh, speak out and run for Congress. And uh, there was a little bit of concern uh, uh, by my wife about this because uh, she, she considered it a dangerous thing to do. And I couldn't understand that. And her, to her, the danger was that I could end up getting elected. But, uh, but I guaranteed her that that couldn't happen because I was going to be talking about, uh, you know, the Federal Reserve and the Federal Open Market Committee and, and who cared about that. But uh, she was more right than I was on, on that. But the 70s were hectic, and there was a cry even at that time to know more about the Federal Reserve. And, uh, and even that decade was not the first time uh, the people uh, through their congressmen were speaking out and wanted more openness about what the Federal Reserve was doing. Early on, even from 1913 on, there was always somebody talking about it. And interestingly enough, uh, a lot of that sentiment originated in Texas. There, anybody remember Wright Patman? Uh, he came from a populist viewpoint. He wanted to know more about how Wall Street was being taken care of by the Federal Reserve, and he wanted the books open. And lo and behold, uh, uh, Henry Gonzalez uh, advocated the same thing. But they came, they came not from a free market perspective, but a populist perspective. But at least they were advocating uh, more openness. In 1978, there was a change in the law. It was a, a law that uh, we're dealing with today. And the law said that uh, the Federal Reserve now can be audited. And you think, well, that's fine and dandy. Uh, but... Uh, interestingly enough, and uh, this is not unusual for Congress, they said, sure, you can be audited except for A, B, C, and D. And, of course, A, B, C, and D are all the important things that the Federal Reserve does, whether it has to do with FOMC meetings, whether it has to do with international agreements, uh, deals that they make with other central banks, uh, the international financial organizations. All that is to uh, be kept secret. And uh, so it was more or less exempt from uh, freedom of information, uh, uh, information or uh, uh, access to Freedom of Information Act. And, and therefore, really, we don't know a whole lot about what goes on behind the scenes uh, at, at the Federal Reserve. But conditions have changed dramatically, if, uh, if you haven't noticed, in this past year. And uh, although I've been talking about it for decades and arguing that we had a financial system that was very friable, very vulnerable, and it was the Fed that was creating the bubbles. And therefore, we should be looking into it and preventing these problems rather than waiting for a uh, cataclysmic financial uh, crisis to hit. But uh, and there were there were more than a few talking about that. But nevertheless, Congress and others were receiving too much benefit by a secretive Federal Reserve system that created money out of thin air and uh, was able to finance big government. So there were two groups over in the Hill that loved this setup. 
The one group, the conservatives, they loved it because you could finance war without being responsible. And the left liked it because you could finance welfare uh, without direct taxation. It was the indirect taxation through inflation, the looting of the money supply that financed uh, big government. And uh, the question, uh, the best answer I have about defending my bill is asking a question. Why not? I mean, why in the world should this much power be given to a Federal Reserve that has the authority to create a trillion dollars secretly? And Congress says nothing. I mean, why not? I mean, it, it, uh, it just means that it just makes so much sense. So uh, the sentiment has changed. It wasn't because all of a sudden the people woke up and decided the Federal Reserve indeed needed to be audited and we needed to know more about uh, the Federal Reserve. It had to do with the TARP funds. It was $700 billions. It's sort of like uh, what they do after the emergency, like uh, 9-11. Well, we need a Patriot Act. If you don't vote for the Patriot Act, you're not patriotic. And they rush that through in a couple of weeks and Nobody gets to read it, but the people want action. So uh, when the crisis hit, TARP funds were passed, $700 billion. Uh, there's still a bunch of it floating around. But all of a sudden, some of those funds got into the hands of uh, uh, unsavory characters, like uh, people who ruined their companies, and they ended up getting hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars in bonuses coming from the American taxpayer. People say, what is going on? And they send a strong message out to Congress. We want to know what's happening. We want transparency. Let's find out what's happening. But then it became known to so many people at the grassroots level that the Federal Reserve is very much involved. They don't quite understand how the Federal Reserve created our problems, but they understand how the Federal Reserve has been very much involved. So though I have a different motivation for transparency overall because of the monetary system and, and what's been going on for years, right now the motivation is to know what kind of shenanigans the Federal Reserve has been up to and how they've been wheeling and dealing and, and bailing out their friends. Congress deals in hundreds of billions of dollars. The Federal Reserve deals in trillions. And it is a, we don't know exactly how much uh, line of credit, guarantees, and direct loans that they have made and promised. And it's estimated it could be 3 or $4 trillion in the past year. But we don't know exactly. So the real uh, necessity is for us to find out. And then uh, we deal with the aftermath. The bill is mainly to open up the books and find out what's going on. It does not deal with monetary policy. It does not deal with regulatory policy. And uh, it, uh, it, it's mainly for opening up the book. So it's, it's less uh, confrontational for those who want to design regulations and deal with, uh, with monetary policy. And I think that's why we're getting such bipartisan su support. Uh, the support is very strong, but it is a reflection not of my ability to go around and, and twist arms uh, because I have no clout whatsoever over in the Congress, but there are a, a, a few spammers out there that are interested in, in what I've been doing, and they're letting their congressmen know. For that, and for that reason, there's a strong move on, and there's a lot of legislative uh, consequences going on on wh where this goes and when we have hearings and, and whether it gets added on in the Senate, and I don't think we have enough time to go into all those details, but one thing for sure is it's never going to be the same again. Never. 
sure. Because if tomorrow, if they came, come in and all the members of Congress, or they remove their names, it changes, and there's no transparency, all we have to say is, what do they have to hide? And for once, I think it's the first time the Federal Reserve has hired a lobbyist to lobby members of Congress against this bill. And guess where the lobbyists came from? Well, she's, she's a hangover from Enron. She lobbied for Enron. So that's very appropriate. She'll know, she'll know the ropes, and she'll recognize a Ponzi scheme, and, and uh, hopefully. But uh, unfortunately, she'll probably be wanting to protect it. Uh, so... Anyway, we, we are very pleased with it, and uh, the thrust of the bill is just openness to find out what's going on. And, of course, my ultimate goal, uh, it will be that once you find out exactly what the Federal Reserve has been up to, and the conclusion being that it's the Federal Reserve that creates financial bubbles, and, of course, Congress adds a lot of problems to that, but that's the key to it. And once that is known, and once you see the deterioration of the dollar, which will come, you can't double the money supply in six months and not have some consequences to it. That is when we will have true monetary reform, and that's when we'll have a lot more fun. Yeah, when I just, with the, uh, rather than using the lectern, I thought I'd just do it from here. By the way, if there's one thing that you learned today, probably the only thing that you may remember, is that that's a lectern, not a podium, okay? <laughs> it's one of my pet peeves. Everybody calls it a podium, but it really isn't. It's called a lectern. Uh, everything else is, <laughs> any event, that's one of those little things that you learn in life that you, it sticks with you and it probably will stay with you. Hopefully it will stay with you forever. Let me, uh, I'm not an apologist for the Fed. I really am not. Uh, I think the Fed, to a certain extent, uh, is Fed and the other banking agencies are uh, pretty much responsible for the mess that we're in today. Um, <clears throat> one of my theories because we were, we were, our firm is actively involved in regulatory and supervisory matters dealing with financial institutions. And um, one of the stories I like to tell is why did, how did the agencies miss this coming up? And I think the answer is um, they were willfully blind. We were involved in a number of situations relating to monoline credit card banks, um, that these were credit card banks that just issued credit cards, and they were moving into the subprime world because they wanted to keep their share prices going up. Uh, the banking agencies were all over these these guys. Uh, they were all over Providian. They were all over MBNA, uh, Cap One, all these entities that were mono created as monoline credit card banks that needed to go into subprime lending in order to keep expanding uh, are no longer in business in terms of monoline. MBNA was bought out by Bank of America. Providian's gone. Cap One has expanded into real banking. And the banking agencies understood what the problem was with respect to subprime lending in the credit card world. And I say to myself, well, how could they be aware of what happened in the subprime credit card world and get all over that from a supervisory standpoint and prevent institutions from um, continuing down this, this disastrous road and somehow ignore it in the subprime mortgage world, which probably was just the same kind of lax lending that was going on in the credit card world? Um, and nobody has ever been able to respond to that properly. And I think down in the bowels of some of these agencies, there probably are emails from uh, the field examiners to head office saying, we've got to stop these banks from engaging in subprime mortgage lending, and probably got replies back saying, leave it alone. The, the economy needs these kinds of lending. So 
I certainly feel that the agencies are, have a lot to, to blame for uh, what happened and where we are today. On the other hand, with respect to Federal Reserve actions, I guess the question that I would ask is, are we better off today than we were in March of 2008 when Bear Stearns was collapsing? Uh, and the Federal Reserve intervened to deal with that situation, as well as intervening to deal with AIG, not intervening to deal with Lehman Brothers and the consequences of that, and the flexibility that the Federal Reserve exhibited in terms of their willingness to make sure that the economy, not just the U.S. economy, but also the world financial system did not collapse. Um, the Fed had done things, when I was at the Fed back in the um, 70s and 80s, and Congressman um, Ron Paul was one of the leading, I think, proponents of, of opening up the Fed, and, and I think Wright Patman. The only person you missed on that was Henry Royce. Henry Royce was also uh, a major proponent of trying to open up the Fed. Um, but we encountered quite a number of institutions that came to the Fed and asking for discount window credit uh, under 13, Section 13.3. Uh, Penn Central was uh, having a disaster and came to the Fed and asked for assistance. Lockheed, um, you just go on, every a Chrysler Corporation, all these entities came to the Fed asking for assistance, saying that the world was going to fall apart if the Fed didn't provide assistance, and the Fed turned them all down. Now, interestingly enough, in 13, Section 13.3 was not unused authority. Um, I went back and did a, when I was at the Fed, did a history of the Fed's use of 13.3, and believe it or not, the Fed in the 1930s used it very, very actively. They didn't lend it to huge corporations because there weren't very many huge corporations back then that needed it, but they would lend to farmers. They would lend to small businessmen. The Reserve Banks were very active lenders. Uh, so it's not unheard of for the Fed to use that extraordinary authority to lend to um, uh, private businesses as opposed to lending to depository institutions. Uh, of course, the extreme amounts that were lent in over the last year and a half, of course, have been completely um, unprecedented and I think is, is to a certain extent a real tribute to the flexibility and the willingness of the Fed to say we are not going to allow this world financial system to collapse. We're going to do everything that we can. Yeah, they can be criticized for doing it off the books that is off the national books because their books are different than, than other books. But you've got to look back, I think, as to what the history of the Fed is. And Congressman Paul mentioned back to 1913, uh, when you go back to the debates in Congress back then, it, you look at the Fed and say this is a very unusual, extraordinary compromise and balance that Congress entered into to take the private sector, have the reserve banks as part of the Federal Reserve System being relatively private entities without using government funds, and the Federal Reserve Board as the central location for the, uh, for the operations. And that was improved upon in the 1930s when the Fed became even more centralized and has been approved upon, obviously, even since then. So I, I think when you look at what the Fed's all about, you really have to recognize the fact that what the, the Fed is a creature of Congress. The Fed's independence is not independence from Congress. I think that's a, a commonly mis, a misunderstanding that, that is around. It's independent from the executive branch, or at least it's supposed to be independent from the executive branch. Yes, obviously it coordinates with the executive branch, and they do work hand in glove, but 
the Federal Reserve is not independent from the Congress. If Congress tomorrow wanted to pass a law saying the Federal Reserve is abolished, it certainly has that ability to do so. There are court cases where the Fed's uh, the use of the Federal Reserve presidents as members of the Federal Open Market Committee has been challenged as a violative of the Constitution. Um, several senators and congressmen have tried, Don Regal tried to do it, tried to, uh, did file suit against the Fed to declare it to be unconstitutional. And the courts unanimously held, there were several circuit court decisions, unanimously held that, hey, you're a congressman, if you want to change the law, go convince 51 of your other members and half the House to change it. You, we're not going to, we're not going to intervene into something that the, the Congress established and declared to be unconstitutional when con- you have an opportunity as a congressman to change it yourself. And I, obviously that's what Congressman Paul is trying to do with respect to the GAO legislation. So the Fed has been clearly under the thumb of the Congress. And I kind of say to myself, Yeah, the Fed does have an exemption from GAO audit for monetary policy purposes, discount window, monetary policy, foreign transactions. That, of course, was created by Congress. Congress passed that law and gave them the exemption in the the statute. Um, But why doesn't Congress eliminate the GAO and just go to the Fed directly and hold them before Congress and say, okay, we want to know – why did you take this action with respect to monetary policy? We want to see all the notes. The, the Fed's subject to subpoena. Uh, yes, they, these things may be exempt from the, uh, from the FOIA, just like other deliberations of other agencies are exempt from the Freedom of Information Act, but they're not exempt from Congress. The Freedom of Information Act does not apply to Congress. Why doesn't Congress ask for these, these, uh, this information? They asked for Chairman Bernanke's emails relating to uh, Bank of America Merrill transaction, and the Fed turned them over, obviously. Um, they could ask for anything they want with respect to the Fed in terms of monetary policy transactions with foreign organizations and discount window lending. So I'm not sure that this legislation um, necessarily <laughs> corrects the problem. The real issue is, does Congress really want to intervene and second-guess the Fed in terms of monetary policy, what are the implications of having the GAO perform audits of the Federal Reserve's monetary policy operation? Now, I, I know Congressman Paul said that monetary policy is not subject to the legislation, but I, I read the legislation as, as amending Section 714 of Title 31, and it puts a period after – um, the, after the provisions which say under regulations of the controller general, the controller general shall audit an agency, period. It doesn't have any exception for monetary policy such as is, is in Section 714 today. So if it is not intended to cover the Fed's monetary policy operations, then it seems to me that the uh, draftsmen of this uh, ought to make some sort of amendment, corrective amendment to carve out monetary policy. Um, in addition, I think the Fed has always taken the position that discount window operations are part of monetary policy. And monetary policy can be done through open market operations, through buying and selling government securities, or through discount window. Uh, and that's been a real problem for the Fed because when they put out these trillion dollars worth of, of liquidity out there, uh, they've got to do something to offset that. Otherwise, there'd be arguably somewhere down the line there's going to be rampant inflation. And I think what the Fed has done for you aficionados of monetary policy out there is to start paying interest on reserve balances. So I think if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, which um, Bert is going to be doing in just a minute or two, 
I think you will see that even though the Fed has expanded its discount window lending and other operations by, by trillions of dollars, the Fed also has about $700 billion that depository institutions have round-tripped into the Federal Reserve and are earning interest on those balances. Uh, so that, in effect, they've been neutralized. Uh, at least $700 billion of it has been neutralized by being put right back into the Fed uh, and does not expand the money supply in that regard. Um, and finally, let me just say that the transparency issue is clearly an issue that the Fed sees and, and understands. And for the first time ever, which I was kind of shocked by, uh, the Fed last April, uh, and probably in, in response to the Congressman Paul's legislation, has put out uh, 44 pages of its financial statements, uh, and they were audited by Deloitte and Touche, um, and they go on and on and on with footnotes uh, out the wazoo in terms of explaining what they, what they do and how they do it and how they get to these numbers. So it's clearly the message is getting to the Fed, and, and at least this indicates at least some degree of attempt by the Fed to, one, be responsive to that criticism, and number two, probably to thwart the legislation that um, would otherwise subject them to GAO audit. So in any event, I think the message that I'm trying to get across is that your, Congress has the authority to do it. Congress has decided to defer that authority. They, they just don't want to intervene in monetary policy type issues. Uh, if this legislation is intending to continue that carve out, I think the Fed would be far more responsive. But I think the way I read the legislation, it gives carte blanche to the controller general to um, go in every nook, cranny, and second-guess the Fed in every monetary policy operation. And I think that runs the risk, arguably, of undermining confidence in what the Fed is doing and probably even affecting international transactions, uh, since that's part of this authority as well. Uh, how willing would foreign central banks and foreign governments be to deal with the Fed if they know that the GAO is going to be in there second-guessing them? And those are just issues, I think, that have to be fully explored or explored further. Mark? Thank you, Gil. I'm going to speak from the uh, podium. We're going to bring the, uh, the, the screen down. Um, my name is Bert Ely, and I'm uh, 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 very pleased to, uh, to be with you today. And I have a few slides to, uh, uh, that I've used to, uh, to illustrate my talk. Um, and I'll, I'll run through these very quickly. There are copies of them uh, outside. Um, uh, first of all, uh, I'm here to play the, the role of Toto, uh, who you all remember, of course, was the, uh, the little puppy dog in uh, The Wizard of Oz that pulled back the curtain to reveal the wizard for the snake oil salesman that, uh, uh, that he was. Uh, the, and by providing a, a third perspective on transpar uh, Fed transparency, whether to mandate a policy order of the Fed is not the issue. That's essentially the thrust of the congressman's bill. The real issue is whether the Fed should have the authority to risk taxpayer funds to provide credit to the private sector. And Gill, of course, has made reference to uh, Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act, which provides that authority. And I have on the screen here keywords in red, which I'll read to you. The board of the governors of the Federal Reserve System may authorize any Federal Reserve Bank to discount for any individual partnership or corporation notes, drafts, or bills of exchange, which is a fancy way of saying the Fed can lend money to the private sector. And we see this. We look at some Fed balance sheets representative over the last couple of years, and we can see the tremendous growth in the credit and not just the Fed balance sheet, but in the amount of credit it has provided 
funded uh, to the uh, to the private uh, sector, partially funded by monies provided by the Treasury and partially funded by money, if you will, lent by the banking system to the Fed. Here in this chart, we see the growth of these uh, various ways in which the Fed has provided credit to the private sector. What is interesting is that traditionally uh, the Fed has largest liability has been the currency that it issues, which it then uses to buy interest-bearing Treasury securities. That's the green band, if you will. That is what has actually declined uh, in, in recent months as the Fed has expanded its lending to the private sector. In effect, the Fed has reduced its Treasury holdings so it can lend more to the private uh, sector. Now, the the Fed's independence uh, in providing credit uh, to the private sector is an important issue from two perspectives. First of all, uh, and this follows up on what Gill said, the president cannot fire the Fed governors. I fully agree with uh, Gill that the Fed is in many ways more responsive to Congress and specifically to the Senate Banking Committee because that's the committee that confirms uh, uh, Fed governors. But the second aspect of that independence is Congress granted the Fed the sole license to issue the non-interest-bearing Treasury debt, which is currency. And, of course, we all know what that looks like. But view currency as nothing more than a non-interest-bearing uh, Treasury. Treasury uh, bill. Um, but what's important is that the income from this currency issuing license gives the Fed enormous financial freedom to spend taxpayer funds without a congressional appropriation. I emphasize without a congressional appropriation, and that extends to its ability to take on risk. Again, picking up on what Fed, uh, Gill said, uh, this is a power that effectively the Congress has granted to the Fed and could take away. Uh, now, traditionally, uh, the Fed has been effectively subsidized by taxpayers. This is a chart that uh, for a typical year like 2007, which shows how uh, money from the Treasury went to the Fed in the form of interest paid on um, the Treasury securities that the Fed bought using the proceeds from issuing currency. It has some other income. It has its expenses. And in, 19, in 2007, sent $5.7 billion less back to the Treasury than it received from the Treasury. This is a taxpayer subsidy, not appropriated as such. It's just all part of the plumbing, if you will, that Congress uh, created. This is for the numbers in 2008 where things actually reversed. The Fed was a profit-making bank, sent back $4.16 billion because it was able to lend a lot to the private sector in uh, 2008. And we can look at this table here and we can see how, while its interest income from the honest treasury securities declined, in part because of lower interest rates, it generated almost $15 billion of income from other sources, which allowed it to, uh, uh, to return funds to the, uh, uh, to, to, the, uh, to the treasury. Now, the Fed, if you will, made money in 2008. Normally, it, uh, it loses money for the taxpayer. But what is important is it made money by taking credit uh, risk, by using the income uh, from its uh, uh, credit, uh, uh, from its currency issuing to help support its operations. While it made money in 2008, if at some point in time it takes losses on the money it's lent to the private sector, it will reduce the amount of money goes back to the Treasury, and that is where the cost will be to the taxpayer, the Fed uh, extending credit. Um, now, because of its currency issuing powers, I would argue that the Fed is merely an extension of the U.S. Treasury. And this chart helps to show it here. The two bars on, on your left, 
uh, basically show the Fed balance sheet. Assets equal liabilities. And then we see the Treasury balance sheet on the other side. What's important is that white line that connects the two sets of balance sheets. These are Treasury deposits uh, at the Fed. Effectively, what was happening, particularly late last year, was that the Treasury was borrowing money, depositing the Fed, the Fed then relent the money. This shows the interlinkage that was there uh, at one point in time last October. It was up to $660 billion, almost two-thirds of a trillion that the, uh, uh, the Treasury had advanced to the Fed so that the Fed could relent. Um, now, what I've done is consolidated the, uh, the two balance sheets so that we can really, uh, of the Fed and the Treasury, so we get a clearer picture of how those two agencies, supposedly independent of each other, in fact should be viewed as a combined entity. Now, like all central banks, the Fed has no financial standing or creditworthiness beyond that of its parent government. And importantly, the Fed is not the U.S. lender of last resort, as is often uh, thought to be the case. The federal government is the lender of last resort, acting through its agent, the Federal Reserve. Now, there's three. I want to close with three policy questions going forward. To what ex- number one, to what extent should private sector credit risk be intermediated through the Fed and the Treasury? Together, the Fed and the Treasury provided net credit of almost a trillion dollars to the private sector on May 31 of this year, as we see, again, coming back this consolidated balance sheet. Two years ago, it was only $124 billion, so we can see the tremendous increase there between those two agencies. Second question, should any agency of the federal government have the power to lend to the private sector without Congress's advanced explicit approval? And if not, then those powers should be repealed. If... Number three, and finally, if, on the other hand, a government agency uh, can, should be able to lend without prior congressional uh, authorization, should that power lie with the Fed, the Treasury, or both? That, I think, is, the, is really the public policy issue before us. And with that, I thank you, and I welcome our questions and discussion. Thank you, Bart. Before we open it up to questions, I want to give uh, Congressman Paul an opportunity to respond uh, to the comments and the other two commenters to have a minute to respond okay. to each other. Um, yes, I, I noticed a fair amount of the discussion, especially from Bert, because he's uh, a real expert on the technicalities of how the Fed operates and policies. Um, but I think it was a little bit more than just opening up the books to find out uh, what is there. And uh, Mr. Schwartz mentioned the uh, idea that uh, the way the bill is written, that uh, auditing meant that we dealt with monetary policy. And that's an extra step. It really, we don't direct monetary policy. We want to know more about monetary policy. And actually, that's one area where I think there has been some progress. There was a time when we didn't get the minutes for a lot longer. We get them sooner. We, uh, I thought it was so silly back in the old days when they would tell you uh, immediately after the Fed board met, oh, I wonder what they did. Did they raise or lower? And they'd wait week after week. Oh, yeah, and they finally figured out what they were doing. Now they announce it. But all they do now is speculate on uh, what are they going to do in six weeks from now. So it's all speculation. It's just totally dis, uh, dis, disjointed from a market phenomenon. What's the Fed going to do with the monopoly power over interest rates? So we don't deal with that, but I think those things are, are very important. But uh, I, I think Mr. Gilbert mentioned also that he was a little bit surprised that they sort of missed it. The regulators weren't there. 
So, but, but how many regulations do we have? We have a ton, the Fed, the FDIC, FCC, and oh, the, the comptroller. There's so many regulations. It's not a lack of regulations. Well, they say, well, no, it's the lack of the efficiency of the regulator. What about the market regulating? And uh, Mr. Gilbert mentions the fact that uh, aren't we a lot better off now that we bailed them out? And I would say, no, we're worse off. We're like a drug addict. You give them a shot of drugs. I feel good today because I have this another shot. I bailed out General Motors. Who feels good about General Motors? I argued a year ago, General Motors bankrupt be behind us. They had a, a couple good products that have been sold. They might be you know, producing instead of the clowns over on the hill deciding what kind of cars are to be built. You, you know, and, and we feel better about that? I don't feel a, a bit better. I like the marketplace. I think when people get overextended and they're insolvent, they go bankrupt. And what have we done? We have done exactly the opposite with all these programs. Uh, we have bailed out the bad guys and we punished the good guys. Instead of the people who have saved and had cash who could buy up these assets once they crash in value and put them into stronger hands, we tax those individuals, either directly or indirectly, buy up the junk, you know, and, and prop up all the malinvestment. Ultimately, the goal, of course, for the auditing is to get to the bottom of monetary policy and why you have bubbles and why you have, uh, have, have recessions. Now, it was mentioned also by uh, Gilbert that uh, there was a bit of a debate in 1913. Anybody know the history of that debate <laughs> passed on Christmas Eve? Hardly anybody in Congress was there. You know, they shoved that thing through. I mean, it was a charade. So I would say it wasn't adequately debated. And even to this day, it's not adequately understood. I would agree that the Congress does have the authority. They should be responsible. But it, the Fed is a much more political organization now uh, than it would be if there was more openness. Because there's been very good articles written about how the presidents, the presidents and not the Congress, would collude with the chairman uh, of, of the Federal Reserve and manipulate monetary policy. So it's, it's very, very political. Uh, in a free market, uh, nobody has this much power. Uh, if you come to the conclusion that manipulation of prices or fixing prices is the destruction of a market economy and end up with socialism, you have interventionism and Keynesianism when you have a central bank that sets interest rates and manipulates and controls the money supply. That's where the real concern is in all these agreements. All these regulations are trying to compensate for something that is unworkable. You say, what do you mean it's unworkable? It's been working just grand since 1913. Yeah, we had the inflation, and we had the war they inflated for, and, and we had a depression in 21. We had inflation of the 20s. We had the depression of the 30s, and on and on. We inflate for the wars and, 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 and whatever. I had a bad decade in the 70s, and look at what we have now. This is the big one, and it's not going to be put back together. You can't put Bretton Woods back together. You can't transfer these powers through the IMF, even though they're trying to do this now. This system has ended. We need to have the exposure so that we can make, uh, make these, uh, these decisions. As far as the Constitution is concerned, the fact that the, Cong the, the courts have ruled favorably uh, in favor of central banking should reassure us. 
I mean, that doesn't do anything. They can't amend the Constitution. There's no authority to have, have a central bank. It's been fought from the days of Jefferson and Hamilton. They've been fighting and arguing. There is no authority. It's still in the books that the states can only use gold and silver as legal tender. And if you want to depend on the courts, I mean, think of how the courts, the, our federal government is explicitly instructed to protect contracts. But what do they do with money? They specifically undermine the contract. What happened to the gold class contracts? What happened of private and government? They just wiped them off the books. So, so everything is perverse. Don't ever expect the courts. It's, it's sort of like the tax revolter. Oh, yeah, I found a technicality. I'm going to court, and I'm going to beat the IRS because I know they're doing something wrong. They don't care, and the monetary authorities don't care either. We will not win in the courts. We will only win when the people wake up and decide transparency is, is what we need. We need to know what's going on, and believe me, when they know exactly what's happening, uh, there will be monetary reform. There will be monetary reform even without it, but the trouble is it will be much better informed if we know how we got in this trouble and what the, where the shenanigans have been, why we don't ever want to have a powerful central bank. Just think about it. The power to create money out of thin air. This is legalized counterfeit. That's what it is. And, and hardly anybody says anything about it. So uh, the fact that it worked a while is, like I said, is sort of like making a drug addict feel uh, better for a bit. But uh, if, you, if getting off the addiction uh, wouldn't be painless, you know, allowing those bankruptcies to occur, that would have been painful. But we might have been able to save the patient. But right now, uh, we're going to have a tough time uh, saving the patient, which is our financial structure, the dollar, uh, true economic growth, our liberties, I mean, uh, everything is at stake. If, if we have, as I expect, and as many others expect, those who predicted this, who knew exactly, they weren't surprised a bit of this crisis, they expect a dollar crisis, and that's what I expect. And that's why we have to find out how they do it, what they've done, what the agreements are, what the commitments are, and then call it to a halt. That would be the ultimate goal. Thank you, Congressman. You certainly given us a lot to chew on. So we could get the questions. Gil and Bert, if you guys could make each, keep it like a minute. Yeah, it, yeah just two, two real quick comments. Um, it seems to me there's no question that uh, opening up, I mean, when, I, when I joined the Fed in 1974, um, I, when I told people I worked at the Federal Reserve, they said, oh, what army is that? So, <laughs> and I think the number of people in this room today is a sort of an indication that the, the world has changed dramatically, and, and certainly the light has been shined on the Federal Reserve a lot more than uh, it was back in the 70s. And, and I do remember the Fed objecting, saying the world is going to fall apart and the world's going to come to a halt if, um, if we had to deliberate, if our deliberations in terms of the policy decisions were released without a delay of at least 5 to 25 years, and you know, somehow the world is still around and the sky hasn't fallen. So I, th I think that that is, has been very, very progressive and, and very much a good thing. Uh, getting rid of the central bank, the only thing I can point to is uh, look at Lehman Brothers. When Lehman Brothers went under, it was complete chaos in the marketplace. Money market mutual funds had to suspend their had to suspend their liquidations. They could not you couldn't liquidate your investments, um, and the, the Fed obviously had to step in to try to bail out the liquidity problems associated with that that problem as well. So 
I think that the, the issue is, do we want to take a chance, let AIG go under, let Lehman Brothers go under, let Bear Stearns go under, and, and try to clean up the mess that occurs afterward, or do we just want to make sure that that, uh, that, that mess doesn't occur, given what's happening in, in the world? And I think the Fed's position, at least with respect to all of them except Lehman, was, no, we're not going to take that risk. And those are policy decisions, whether it should be done by Congress or whether it should be done by the administration or by the Fed, remains to be seen. Obviously, in the, in the administration's proposal, the Fed isn't going to be able to use their 13-3 authority without Treasury approval, so that they do get the executive into that issue as well. And certainly, Congress can weigh in when they're deliberating uh, the legislation that's um, bef- going to be before them as to how to restructure this issue. Uh, Mark, just a couple quick comments. I think the congressman's uh, uh, remarks uh, just a couple of minutes ago highlight what is a really complex aspect of looking at Fed issues, and that is the multiplicity of roles it plays. Uh, first of all, of course, it's in the interest rate uh, fixing game through the uh, the. the establishing the federal funds uh, rate target as it's going to be uh, uh, doing today or reaffirming today. Second is in the regulation of the financial system as, as one of a multitude of regulators. And then the third, as I talked about, is the taking on a credit risk through the uh, exercise of the Section 13.3 authority to make credit extensions. And I think as we go forward in debating the role of the Fed, we have to keep uh, properly sort out and, and differentiate among these different responsibilities uh, the Fed uh, should have. Thank you. I, I want to thank all of our speakers. I know we have a little bit of time for questions, and, and I will emphasize the, the point questions, not speeches, not uh, commentary or too much commentary, but uh, if we can open up. Uh, let's start right over here. Uh, yes, I just for, uh, for Congressman Paul, I'm interested in, uh, for, for a long time, for years, you've been uh, criticizing the Fed. And I'm wondering, wh- what, what do you think is different now? I mean, do you think that your legislation has a legitimate chance of becoming law? And if it does, how, what is the process that you think it will go through? What committees? And uh, will, at the end of the day, will your name be on it, you think? <laughs> well, the second part about what the process will be, I alluded to it, and it'll be, it'll be complex. Uh, if they wanted to... It could go through in one day. It could go under suspension because uh, I don't know of anybody in the Congress right now, if they perceive a bill, sometimes, you know, they don't read bills in detail. If, <laughs> if they perceive this as transparency, oh, that's good, and they'll vote for it. And no, it would pass easily, I think, in both uh, the House and Senate, but that's not likely to happen. It may get stuck on. It may end up being on a major banking reform bill, which would be a mixed blessing because maybe 98% of that bill will be lousy, and this might be stuck on it. So that could happen, but it could be put on a bill in the Senate. Uh, there are a couple people talking about that, a different piece of legislation. Um, I, I think there is going to be more than just one lobbyist by the Federal Reserve to stop this. You know, uh, I think it's uh, – but, but like I said earlier, I says, uh, you know, the, uh, the cat is out of the bag, and we, we'll we, – you can't put it back in. People will demand it. And besides, there's a certain amount of momentum that's going to continue uh, regardless. I think the reason is is strictly because of the economic conditions. I mean, if we were, um, you know, three or four or five years ago and uh, there was a perceived economic growth and, and the bills were being paid by China, 
just loaning us back our own money and that game was continued to be played. No, I don't, I don't think it would be. It was, it was events. My arguments haven't changed, and I don't deliver a better speech or anything like that, but I think it's the conditions. Uh, the conditions are just were ripe for it, and, uh, but it also reflects what's happening out, outside at the grassroots level. Uh, most members of Congress know that the people in this country are really, really upset just about everything. And because they're recognizing that our country is bankrupt and that their personal liberties are being undermined, that our persistence to be in every country, no, only 720, 130 countries, 700 and some bases overseas, they know all this and they're tired of it all and they're starting to pay the price. And, uh, and, and that's, that's what's called their attention uh, to it. And I think that's the biggest reason why we're getting that much support. If I remember too, I believe it's uh, included in the Republic, House Republican banking reform plan that was put out a couple of weeks ago by Hunter Lean and Royce. I think yes, it's actually- it's mentioned in there. It's uh, a little more generalized than this, but I alluded to that. I have a question over here in the front. Michael Osterland, Campaign for Liberty. Uh, Dr. Paul, uh, recently um, Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, following your lead, challenged the uh, Fed Chairman and the Secretary of Treasury at a recent hearing. Well, do you see other members of Congress also following your lead and doing the same, either Democrat or Republican? Am I seeing more people challenge him? Uh, yes, uh, uh, very definitely. And, and some of them are doing a much better job than I do. And, uh, and, and I think that is just great. Uh, being only one person... Uh, you, you know, it, it's not as much fun and it, it gets a, a little tiring, but uh, there are a lot more uh, individuals. And uh, I think they're learning and studying and, and, and realizing the significance and the importance of the Federal Reserve. So that to me is very encouraging. We had a question here in the front. Yeah, so I read, uh, you could wait for the mics, everybody else. Thank you. Um, I read in the late 800s about uh, this professor in England who challenged Parliament to transfer to paper currency, and he was imprisoned and tortured. Um, um, Thanks a lot. No, no, I mean, so I asked the question, I mean, is your safety compromised because you've been trying to, you know? Well, I guess I'll have to go back to what my wife told me. Maybe maybe she really knew what was going on. Uh, no, I don't think about that. I think about automobiles and uh, taxi cab drivers sometimes as, as much as anything. Uh, I'm not quite into it that to that much but i do think it's 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 big i think there's a lot of interest i i I think less of it being a a threat uh, but i think that energy will be directed toward uh uh, what they do behind the scenes i mean a a bill like this could be passed you could change three or four words and uh and change the whole thing you know uh must to Maybe or shall or, you know, just a change of a phrase can make all the difference in the world. That's probably the way they'll combat it because the momentum for oversight is so great. We have the far back in the center. You don't think the congressman would enjoy waterboarding? I think you might, you might enjoy waterboarding. <laughs> I, thought, I thought that's what they had down in the basement. I thought that's what they had down in the basement of the Fed. <laughs> So they keep the gold. From the Fed threatening me with waterboarding. <laughs> uh, William Freeland uh, with the Koch Summer Fellowship. Uh, question for Mr. Schwartz. Uh, the claim was made that uh, essentially that, you know, but for the bailouts, we'd be in a lot worse shape, the, uh, the bank balance, that is. Uh, I guess my question is just clearly what reason do we have to believe that that's not true and that uh, 
the actual uncertainty, the panic in the markets had more to do with just regime uncertainty in the markets instead of, you know, the actual act of letting Lehman fail. So just your thoughts on what reason we do – excuse me, we do have to believe that. Well, I mean, there are – I mean, taking Lehman as an example, um, there are a lot of people here uh, – maybe not in this room, but there are a lot of people around who still have – uh, not been able to redeem their money market mutual fund shares from the reserve fund. Um, there are a lot of people I know who have auction rate preferred securities who have not been able to redeem them because uh, of the failure of the issuers to to pay them. And liquidity, it seems to me, and the ability to pay your rent and to pay your automobile loans and a lot of other things in terms of access to, to your funds is critically important. That's one of the reasons why they raised the deposit insurance limits to $250,000 to ensure that people don't panic and pull their money out of banks so that um, so that they continue to have access to it. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of things that you can point to to indicate that there are some significant problems if you allow some, allow some of these institutions to fail. On the other hand, long-term capital, which was not necessarily a government bailout as opposed to a government arm-twisting, um, you know, they pointed to things like the Danish mortgage market as being critically important somehow. And, and so there are situations, it seems to me, where the entities perhaps should not be bailed out. Uh, back in 1979, when Chrysler was bailed out, uh, it was clearly a jobs program to ensure that they continued in place in order to uh, provide jobs. I mean, they made this great K-car, which I, I don't know if any of you people ever bought a K-car, but it lasted for about two or three years and then fell apart. And I think a lot of people who bought those cars said to themselves, why do we bail Chrysler out? And here we are 30 years later continuing to say, why are we bailing Chrysler out? So I, th I think there's just a lot of indications out there that um, people would have continued to panic and perhaps freak out um, had there not been the bailouts of certain of these organizations. And again, I, I point to Lehman as a perfectly good example of what happened, and we're still suffering the consequences, at least the people who had uh, funds in, in the reserve fund. Uh, if I could just add to that, uh, in my Cato Journal article that Mark referenced to, I uh, outlined 11 different public policy uh, causes of this crisis. Government got us into this mess, but then when things finally blow up, I think that uh, just to be pragmatic about it, the government had to intervene the way it did to try and hold the system together until we work through the worst of, of the crisis and then hopefully focus on addressing those underlying causes. Not that I'm very optimistic about that. But to me, the question really is, what is the degree of political accountability with when the government extends credit? And the problem we have with Section 13.3 is the, the fact that there is not sufficient political accountability when the Fed makes those credit extensions, which is why one important element of the president's regulatory reform proposals, about which I have lots of problems, but I think one in there is that uh, it would establish accountability in the sense that the Treasury would not be able to use that uh, Section 13.3 authority to lend unless it first had to sign off from the Treasury Department, ultimately from the president. That gives, uh, provides a political accountability that's lacking today. Right over here. Ashkan Abdul Malik, Merrill Advisory Group. Um, I have a question for Dr. Paul and possibly Mr. Ely. I mean, we've talked about accountability. We've talked about transparency. But what we haven't talked about is actionability. And a great number of the programs that are in, whether it's, you know, propping up LIBOR, the term, as, the term auction liquidity facility, things like that, are things that you can't really back out of in, you know, six months, a year, two years, three years even. There's really a, a black hole problem that, 
that I'm not sure that transparency actually leads into actionability. You know, my worst fear is seeing, you know, Ben Bernanke on one side and then Maxine Waters on the other and seeing how that discussion goes when they actually have the information in hand. So where do you link that transparency into actionability? What discrete steps do you have? You know, the other couple of weeks ago, I guess the last time Bernanke was before the committee, I brought up the subject, how do they back off the, these programs? And uh, there's been a fair amount of talk about that. And I said, and I'm convinced he is between the rock and the hard place. You know, if they announce today that they're going to uh, stop these all in six weeks, you know, and back off, it would be catastrophic. You know, the markets would go nuts because they need their <laughs> they need their shot. <laughs> you know, they, they don't want to have any withdrawal symptoms. But my uh, my approach would be that uh, I wouldn't close everything down immediately. But if we continue to do what we're doing and we never curtail it, we never know what's going on, it will inevitably lead to the dollar crisis. It'll be worse than any crisis that you bring up by backing off. But I'm still not for closing the Fed down. You know, it's, it's just too big a deal. But... I am for legalizing competition. I mean, why should they be afraid of it? We have a public school system here that is a disaster. There's no evidence whatsoever that the Department of Education over these last several decades have been any benefit. And finally, the conservatives get in, and, of course, we have no child left behind, and, you know, everything is okay. But, <laughs> but there's still, in education, the right to homeschool your kids and have a private school, and we will survive. In medicine... If you don't have the right to opt out of what's coming, believe me, it's over for any decent medicine whatsoever. You always have to have the right to get out. And in monetary policy, there's no reason why we can't do this. This is uh, Hayek's position that uh, you can have competing currencies. If the Fed wants to continue to do what they're doing, at least don't put us in jail, don't waterboard us, and don't, don't torture us for advocating, uh, you know, freedom. And, uh, and, and there's no reason. There's competing currencies around the world. Why can't we once again have our constitutional right to use a gold currency and, and uh, it be legal tender? Uh, but today the legal tender laws uh, prevent you from doing this. As a matter of fact, you do go to jail still. There are people being prosecuted, uh, but, but they can't even define a dollar. But you could legalize competition. And then in time, the Federal Reserve will self-destruct, the dollar will self-destruct, and then there will be something in place. So that would be my way of doing it rather than saying, well, I'll close this program down in three weeks and the next one in three weeks. That won't work. Um, I think that uh, we do need to be thinking more aggressively about how to wind down the Fed's uh, position. There is a lot of interest in that, even within the Federal Reserve. The key comes in slowing down the granting of new credit extensions, uh, purchasing of securities. Then what will happen is the Fed balance sheet will basically liquidate itself automatically. And going back to that one chart I had, go back and look more like it did a couple of years ago. But key to that is slowing down the granting of new credit extensions and letting the existing ones run off. We've got time for about two more questions. So uh, let's, uh, these two here in the front, young lady first, and then we'll go to the gentleman and wrap it up with that. Hello, I'm Karina Zanat from the Libertarian National Committee. Um, this question is for Dr. Paul. Um, how do you respond to those who say that um, auditing the Fed in the way that your bill advocates will result in foreign powers losing uh, their confidence in doing business, I mean, economic contracts with the Federal Reserve? 
Uh, let me see if I get that. If we audit it, it will undermine confidence? For foreign powers. Informed governments. Foreign governments have confidence. In their confidence. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, they're losing confidence by the day, you know, and they're threatening us. So I would say that uh, if we had at least more openness. Now, if, if, it's, if the books are a lot worse and there's more agreements and there's more commitments, uh, yeah, it could. But why should we be afraid of the truth? Eventually, that will affect us. So uh, I don't think we should ever uh, prevent the truth from coming out. You know, if if our country looks bad because uh, we know that we torture, hiding it doesn't make us a good country all of a sudden. So if hiding something uh, makes us look better in the eyes of foreign nations, it doesn't make us better. So ultimately, the truth has to come out. So uh, I, I would say that possibly it would. But uh, at the rate we're going, uh, j- just as we have lost confidence around the world in foreign policy and other things, we've been we'll lose confidence uh, uh, like today and yesterday, the dollar was losing, people were losing confidence, and, and I think that's going to continue. And if you look at a chart uh, for the last 30 years since Bretton Woods uh, broke down, uh, either if you look at purchasing power or in relationship to other currencies, and even the other currencies, a weak measurement of this confidence, because uh, other countries, I mean, they look at the Europeans, I mean, they're more socialistic than we are. It's amazing that we, uh, that they're not a lot worse. That means we're really bad if they, they at times uh, are are improving their currency. So, no, I don't think truth uh, ever is detrimental to us, and we should know the truth about the monetary affairs. Last question. And this question is from Mr. Schwartz. Uh, the Fed is often accused of creating money out of thin air or engaging in legalized counterfeiting. And my question is, does the Fed create money out of thin air? And if not, could you explain how it doesn't? Uh, you have to uh, – well, the answer very simply is yes, they do create it out of thin air. Uh, now, how they do it is uh, you have to suspend reality. Most of, the, most of the Fed's assets – I mean, if you look at the Fed's balance sheet, and I think that's really kind of a, a measure of kind of what's going on, uh, half their assets, literally half uh, – let's start with their liabilities. Half their liabilities are Federal Reserve notes. They've got over a trillion dollars worth of Federal Reserve notes outstanding, and that's currency. I mean, that's what they issue. The uh, amounts that they put into bank accounts and things like that is, is now it's obviously very big because of the lending programs. But generally, issuance of currency is what the Federal Reserve is all about, and that's how traditionally they made all their money. And very simply, if people demand currency, which they do because you need to have it for transactions, you need to have it for ATMs, and, and foreign, uh, foreigners need it in order to engage in, uh, in, in, I guess, tax avoidance overseas, and literally half our currency is over – more than half our currency is overseas, uh, effectively what the Fed does is to print the currency, and they have the Bureau of Engraving and Printing print it. Uh, and they ship it out to a bank, and a bank has to pay for it. And how does a bank pay for it? They pay for it with uh, with your deposits. If you walk into a bank and you put a deposit in and, and you want currency and you want to make a withdrawal of that, the bank has to then send that deposit to the Fed, make a deposit at the Fed. So the Fed now has a deposit. They issue a Federal Reserve note to the bank, and they, the bank gives you the Federal Reserve note. And now the balance sheet balances. The Fed has the deposit. 
uh, that the bank put in there, and they have a liability, which is the Federal Reserve note, and they invest that deposit in government securities, and they earn interest on those government securities. So it's a, it's a very simple process, but it's not intuitive, and it is creating money, literally creating money out of thin air. And that's what creation of the money supply is all about. That's, you know, how much of that currency and how much of the money that's going to be created is, is a function of the Fed's judgment as to how much is appropriate given the level of demand for currency, the level of demand for balances, and growth of the economy. Uh, just to, to add to that, the Fed, given how things work in the United States today, cannot create inflation by the printing press. And the reason why is the amount of currency that's in circulation is totally demand-driven. Anybody who has currency can take it to their bank and use it to buy, uh, ultimately, uh, an interest-bearing uh, Treasury bill. Where the inflation comes from, particularly back in the 70s, is the Fed's interest rate signaling through the federal uh, funds uh, rate target. It pulled the rates too low. We got a tremendous uh, uh, inflation. And we have seen that in just the last couple of years. Uh, as, again, my Cato Journal article points out, in the early Earlier in this decade, the Fed pulled the Fed funds rate target very low. The bank prime rate floats rigidly at three percentage points. Over that, what happened? Adjustable rate mortgages became very cheap. And so what did people do? They borrowed uh, for on, on adjustable rate mortgages at very low rates, effectively set by the Fed. And that led to the, uh, uh, the increased amount of mortgage credit, which drove up demand for houses, drove up housing prices. We had a classic asset bubble that's coming down today. So the real issue in this country, and frankly, in much of the industrialized world, is not the printing press, literally, in terms of the issuance of currency. It is interest rate signaling by the federal bank, uh, by, the, by, the, by the central banks. And uh, that kind of lies beyond the immediate scope of this discussion today. But that's where the inflation threat is, is with the Fed's rate signaling, not how much uh, currency is in circulation. I, I just wanted to add uh, one comment. I, I think when he was alluding to the fact that there's not inflation right now, it means the CPI is not going uh, up necessarily. Uh, but there is inflation from my viewpoint because the money supply has been doubled. Because it's not circulating and churning out there doesn't mean there isn't inflation. And you have, and how do they, ha how do they inflate? Uh, how do they give you low interest rates? We have very, very low interest rates. The only way you do that is you, you know, create a lot of money and a lot of credit, and that, that is inflation. But I think the point I would like to make is uh, when you think about it, I uh, think inflation is a monetary uh, uh, a monetary event. You increase the supply of money and credit and alter interest rates, that's where the source of the trouble is. And then sometimes you get high, higher prices. And uh, so we have distorted. We have distorted the market going in, created the bubble, and that's all we're doing now. We're price fixing. We're price fixing when we come with housing assets and these, uh, these, uh, these securities that aren't negotiable and they can't buy them. Well, they're worthless. That's why, that's why they, can't, they can't put a price on them. That's why the government buys them. But they're buying them with the creation of credit. That, to me, is inflation, uh, and it's not just waiting for prices to go up. I want to thank all of our panelists uh, for the discussion today, and I want to thank everybody here and welcome you to uh, lunch up in the Winter Garden.